0: Good afternoon. It's good to see everybody today. Well, a few years back, me and one of my buddies, who had just gotten out of the military, we were driving out to my dear lease. So we were going to spend a weekend hunting. And we had just pulled into this gas station that's in this little bitty town, and all that's there is this little four-way stop sign as we get out of my truck, we could hear this car approaching that was just laying on their horn, honking like crazy. And the lady had her head out of the window yelling. And we didn't know what was happening. Well, then this SUV pulls up in front of that truck and on the back of it, there's one of those kind of like a luggage hauler on the back and it had a tarp over it. Well, that tarp was on fire. <clears throat> so that's what that lady was honking at and of course, I just stand there looking at this like, "Man, what's going to happen?" <laughs> but my buddy takes off running. And he runs right to that car, and luckily he gets the driver's attention, and the driver, you know, unlocks the car and he, my buddy opens up that back door and he just starts pulling these college kids out of the car. They just are sitting there. and They have no sense of urgency with what's happening. None whatsoever. So at this point, the flames are now going over the car and my buddy gets the last girl out of the back seat and she just kind of nonchalantly turns to go back into the car because of course she left her cell phone in there. And as she grabs her phone, the back windshield breaks and flames are in that car. And I'm not kidding. Within about 30 seconds, that whole car is just engulfed in flames. I mean, it took no time at all. And now all of a sudden, these kids who just 10 seconds ago had no sense of urgency, could care less about what was happening, are literally running away from this car that's on fire they all of a sudden had this renewed sense of danger and of urgency to get away from what was happening. And I wonder if this can be true of us sometimes with our sin. Do we sometimes downplay the danger of it? Do we sometimes lack the urgency that's needed to put our sin to death and to flee from it? to even just stay away from it? Do we see it as something that can hurt us, as something that can bring about our destruction? Are we sometimes like these kids who had no sense of urgency to escape the danger that they were in? Today, we're going to continue in Proverbs. We're going to be in Proverbs chapter 6. The heading probably in most of your Bibles should say something like practical warnings. But just as a reminder, these first nine chapters of Proverbs are a father's instructions to his son. Of course, this is Solomon, who's the king of Israel, instructing his son in how to live and walk in wisdom in a world that is full of folly. As I heard one pastor say, the law shows us our sin and need for Christ. And the Proverbs show us that we are foolish and in need of Christ. And here in Proverbs 6, we're going to have three negative examples where wisdom is needed to walk the path of righteousness. And there's a few things that we should note before we read our text First, we're going to see that these examples, they build on one another. They go from bad to worse. And second, we see a sense of urgency, that these things are dangerous. They will trap you. They will harm you. That you must follow wisdom and avoid them. And third, again, these are all warnings. And if ignored, then there will be consequences. And really, our text is going to break down pretty clearly with the stanzas that we see. So verses 1 through 5, we're going to see rashness. In verses 6 through 11, we'll see laziness. And then in verses 12 through 19, we're going to see wickedness. And if you're taking notes, it should be there in the bulletin. But my sermon in a sentence is to walk the path of wisdom... One must hear a father's warning and urgently flee from folly. So then if you would please stand and read with me from God's word. So again, we are in Proverbs chapter 6, 1 through 19. My son... If you have put up security for your neighbor, have given your pledge for a stranger, if you are snared in the words of your mouth or caught in the words of your mouth, well, then do this, my son, and save yourself. For you have come into the hand of your neighbor. Go, hasten, and plead urgently with your neighbor. Give your eyes no sleep and your eyelids no slumber. Save yourself like a gazelle from the hand of the hunter. And like a bird from the hand of the fowler. Go to the ant, O oh sluggard. Consider her ways and be wise. Without having any chief officer or ruler, she prepares her bread in summer and gathers her food in harvest. Oh, how long will you lie there, O oh sluggard? When will you arise from your sleep? A little sleep, a little slumber, a little folding of the hands to rest. And poverty will come upon you like a robber, and want like an armed man. A worthless person, a wicked man, goes about with crooked speech, winks with his eyes, signals with his feet, points with his finger, with perverted heart, devises evil, continually sowing discord. Therefore, calamity will come upon him suddenly. In a moment, he will be broken beyond healing. There are six things the Lord hates, seven that are an abomination to him. Haughty eyes, a lying tongue, hands that shed innocent blood, a heart that devises wicked plans, feet that make haste to run to evil, a false witness who breathes out lies, and one who sows discord. Among brothers. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. Amen. You can be seated. So, our first warning then in verses one through five is against making rash decisions, specifically rash decisions regarding our money. Solomon says, My son, if you have put up security for your neighbor, You have given a pledge for a stranger. So what he's warning about here is debt or giving a loan for somebody. But we need to understand the context of Israel here under the old covenant. They were always meant to be a generous people, especially to one another. In Deuteronomy 15, we read about the sabbatical year. That every seven years, debts are forgiven. Slaves are released. But it goes on to say that if you have a brother that is poor, then you should give to him generously. Give to him what he needs and don't charge any interest. God's people were meant to be generous. So this is not a warning here in Proverbs about being generous and loaning money to a friend or a stranger. But if you're going to loan money, then it needs to be money that you can lose. And we're also gonna see two different groups here. So you see a neighbor, but then you also see a stranger. Neighbor is gonna give the idea of someone that you know, potentially a fellow Israelite. And of course, stranger, that's going to be the opposite. So, this is oftentimes used in the Old Testament as somebody who is a non Jew, somebody who's outside of the family of God. So, then, with these two bookends of neighbor and stranger, now we're talking about everybody. So, we need to think wisely then before we do business with anyone. But I think we get a little bit clearer context when we get to verse 2. Because he says, if you are snared or caught in the words of your mouth. So this is not just giving a loan of money to someone out of the means that God has already blessed you with. It's not buying coffee for a friend or spotting someone a couple bucks to go buy gas. Now this is taking on somebody's unknown risk. I think a good example for us today is co-signing a loan with someone. Someone who the bank has already considered a high financial risk. And so now you are going to put your own financial security at stake for them. So this is a warning about assuming financial responsibility for somebody else. And whether this decision was made out of potentially fear of man, wanting to appear a certain way to others. Maybe it's not wanting to disappoint a friend, or maybe just from lack of foresight and planning. Regardless of the reason, God says that it is foolish to be ensnared in this way. It's foolish to be trapped in this way because it puts your own financial security at stake. But there are other ways that that this decision can cause harm. You know, if you sell a car to a friend or a family member, and maybe they make the first couple of payments, but after a time the money stops coming in, do you think that there could be a tendency towards bitterness, a tendency towards anger? Could this potentially cause disunity among brothers? So listen, not only is it just our financial state at risk, but the sin, I think, of bitterness and anger is also at stake. Disunity is at risk. This is why Solomon says it is unwise to make these rash financial decisions. And Solomon doesn't just tell his son, hey, buddy, it's probably going to work itself out, so don't worry about it. No, that's how the fool thinks. Now he says, listen, you should have a sense of urgency about this. You have been ensnared and you need to go and save yourself. He tells him, you need to go and plead urgently with your neighbor. Don't sleep on it. Don't be lazy about it. You know, the words hasten and pleading here, this is language that is meant to be humbling. He says, you're to do whatever it takes to get out of this. The New American Standard says, you're to humble yourself. You're to literally get on your knees and beg this person to let you out of this situation. And then the NIV says that you're to give your neighbor no rest. So you don't stop until they let you out of this situation. Why? Again, so that you might save yourself. So do we have this type of urgency when we maybe make a decision like this? Are we willing to humble ourselves before others? Again, I want to be clear that the urgency we see here is because you have made a foolish decision that can lead towards poverty and sin. So it is unwise for us to put ourselves then in the place of someone else who is a high risk investment for us to take on the risk of somebody else's debt. Because we may find that when that debt comes to call, now we're going to be found wanting. We maybe don't have the means then to pay this debt. And does that sound familiar at all? Yeah, it struck me the first time I started reading through this, that this thing that God tells us is foolish was actually wisdom for him. That the one who, the wisdom of God would become our guarantor. Though we are a high risk investment, Christ stood in our place and he took our debt. Friends, this is the gospel. What is foolish for man is the wisdom of God. In Job 17, Job realizes that God is the only one who can care for him. And he asked God to lay down a pledge for him, which is the same language we see here. Because who is there, Job says, who will put up security for someone as high risk as me? Oh, it's only God who can do that. And Listen, that is all of us. We are all fools who are living in our sin, or yet Christ has come and paid our debt, past, present, and future, that he nailed our ledgers of debt like we just saw to the cross and said, paid in full. And now when the devil tries to accuse us of defaulting on this, Christ says, no, I paid that in full. Hebrews says that he is the guarantor of a better covenant. Why? Well, the author says that because he now holds this priesthood permanently, that there is never a time that he is not interceding for you. And he is the only one, Hebrews says, who can save to the uttermost. So then it doesn't matter how great your debt is or how big of a risk that you are. No, Christ can and he will take that debt. And he will say, paid in full by my blood. But for, he doesn't just clear the debt. No, he then gives us his riches. He gives us his righteousness. It re- should remind us of the prodigal son. You know, he left his father and he had all his father's riches, his nice clothes on. But then he loses it all due to his foolishness and sin. Yet when he returns, what does the father do? Does he just tell him, hey, welcome back, you're forgiven? No, he takes off his robe and he clothes him. He takes his ring and he puts it on him. He gives him his riches. He says, this one is mine. And what is mine is his. And this is exactly what Christ has done for us. And he's the only one who can do this for us. No other payment for our debt will suffice. So listen, if you're here and you thought that maybe your good works could do something, maybe your church attendance or generous giving to the poor, that maybe this could earn your forgiveness, friend, let me tell you, it never will the distance between even the very best one of us in here and God is too great, that only God himself can bridge this gap. And that's exactly what he has done in Christ Jesus. That Jesus is the image of the invisible God. He is the firstborn of all creation. And he is very God of very God. And in him alone do we find forgiveness of sin. And true righteousness. So friend, the only thing required then of you to be saved from the wrath to come is to trust in Jesus Christ. And if you have not done this, don't be the fool and ignore these warnings. Now trust in Christ today. So Solomon then warns his son, don't rush into debt with someone. Don't make financial rash decisions because you will be trapped and you will be in danger. So flee from them. And listen, before we move on to the second warning here, I I just want to say if you find yourself here this morning and you are in need of help financially, I hope that you would let us know that. Because again, God desires his church to be generous. And that's why we have a deacon of benevolence here, that we want to be generous with what God has given us. So I just want to make it abundantly clear, and I think I've already said it at least three times, but this is is a warning against a rash financial decision. It's not a warning against generosity. So listen, if you are in need, please come and find one of the elders here. Come and find Joel. He's usually the best dressed of all of us. We would love to find ways that we can help serve you and meet your needs. All right, well, let's move on then to our second warning. And in it, we're going to see a different subject. So he no longer addresses the son as we move on through this. Now he's going to be addressing the sluggard. And again, in this part of the text, we're going to see a need for urgency. So the one who should be taking dominion over the created order now needs to go and take a lesson from it. And the first thing we see in verse six is that laziness is the way of the fool. The sluggard Is a fool who needs to go and observe the ant so that he can become wise. And this is a very popular subject in Proverbs. You see it throughout the book. You see the foolishness of being lazy. It's mentioned, I think, over 20 times in Proverbs. And there's a consistent theme with it that sluggards, their end is poverty. So in ten four it says a slack hand causes poverty. In thirteen four it says the soul of a sluggard craves and gets nothing, while the soul of the diligent is richly supplied. nineteen fifteen. Slothfulness cast into a deep sleep, and an idle person will suffer hunger. twenty verse four The sluggard does not plough in the autumn, and he will seek at harvest and have nothing. So when we observe the sluggard, we see poverty and one who follows worthless pursuits. But when we observe the wisdom of the ant, we're going to see three things. First, we see an inner drive or motivation. That ants, they don't need a taskmaster standing over them to work hard. She knows her task and she does her work. Second, we see that she works hard. She prepares her bread in summer. In the heat of the day, she is out working. And third, we see that she has foresight. She knows difficult times will come, so she prepares for them. But what is the slugger doing? He just wants to sleep. He wants to neglect his work. He has the mindset of, getting to his work a little bit later. Maybe after a nap, then he'll go to work. Yet the intended impl- implication here is that it's never just a little nap. It always turns into a long sleep. And it always turns in then to the work being neglected. Chapter 26, verse 14 says, a door turns on its hinge, so, the, so does a sluggard turn on his bed. And here's the warning for the sluggard. He says, if you continue in this, then poverty will come. Not slowly, but like a robber, like an armed man. They will come quickly, and before you know it, you're going to be in poverty. I know I've told a lot of you this story, but I was robbed one time when I was overseas. I was walking down the street, and these... Two guys asked me for directions, which should have been a major red flag going off, but it didn't. And we're just walking, and we're talking about their favorite soccer team. And again, I don't know why, but I turned down a, basically a dark alley. It was very unwise. But before I even knew what was happening, they had me pinned up against the wall, had a knife to my ribs, and telling me to, you know, hand over my phone and my money. There was no laziness at all about them. It was fast and it came very quickly. And Solomon is saying that this is what the sluggard can expect about poverty. It's going to come upon him like a robber. Listen, God desires his people to be diligent, to be hard workers. Instead of resting and slumbering to avoid work, No, we are meant to rest because of our work. Work is a good thing. God gave Adam and Eve the task to work before sin ever entered the world. They were meant to tend the garden, to work it and keep it. Yet after the fall, work became hard. It became something that we would toil in. It also became something that I think we could idolize. I mean, there is such a thing as too much work. When we do our job well and then rest from our work, we are trusting in God's provision for us. We're saying that we know that God is going to take care of us. So I wonder, are you diligent with the work that God has given you? Whether that be at your Vocation, maybe raising your family, being a student, even preaching a sermon. I'm sure that there's a lot of us who are sitting and thinking like, you know, I'm doing pretty good in this. I'm financially stable. I haven't loaned money or co signed anything with anyone. And man, I'm a hard worker. I don't need anybody motivating me to get my job done. But I'm curious, are we ever lazy in areas outside of our vocation? What about with our sin? Do we, like the sluggard, just turn over in bed rather than confess our sin? Or like the sluggard who makes the excuse, there's a lion out in the street so he can't go outside? Do we make excuses for our sin? Excuses for why maybe we'll just repent or confess later. We know it's there. We know we need to confess it, but we make excuses for it. Um, If I screw up again, then, then I'll tell somebody. What about gathering on Sundays? Do we make excuses for maybe being tired from a long week? Or a long Saturday. So we're just going to stay home and get some rest. I was talking to another brother this week that oftentimes when people leave the faith, it's not in some fiery rebellion, but it's in a slow drift of laziness. It's slow to find a church, slow to get involved, slow to confess sin. Next thing you know, you're not really sure that you even believe any of this anymore. You think the devil ever uses laziness to disrupt and discourage weary pilgrims? C.S. Lewis has a pretty chilling example of this in his Screwtape letters. Screwtape, who's, I guess, a senior demon, he's writing to his nephew. He says this, he says, You're making excellent progress. My only fear is less than attempting to hurry the patient. You awaken him to a sense of his real position. For you and I who see the position as it really is must never forget how totally different it ought to appear to him. We know that we have introduced a change of direction in his course, which is already carrying him out of his orbit around the enemy, which their enemy, of course, is God. But he must be made to imagine that all the choices which have affected this change, of course, are trivial and revocable. He must not be allowed to suspect that he is now, however slowly, heading right away from the sun on a line which will carry him into the cold and dark of utmost space. And after describing some of the temptations that Wormwood, the nephew, should use, he concludes, you will say that these are very small sins, and doubtless, like all young tempters, you are anxious to be able to report spectacular wickedness. But do remember, the only thing that matters is the extent to which you separate the man from the enemy. It does not matter how small the sins are, provided that they culminate. culminate. Effective is to the edge. The, it edges the man away from the light and out into nothing. Murder is no better than cards if cards can do the trick. Indeed, the safest road to hell is the gradual one. The gentle slope, soft underfoot, Without sudden turnings, without milestones, without signposts. Friends, laziness is this gentle slope that leads to drifting, that leads us away from God and his means of grace. Paul warns the church in Thessalonica to avoid idleness. We should avoid it because it's not in accordance with The traditions that we have received. Paul and his fellow workers were not idle when they were among them. No, they worked hard and they trusted God's provision. We should imitate Paul then in this way. He says in Second Thessalonians three that if one is not willing to work, then let him not eat. So listen, we are meant to work hard. I think the author of the Hebrews gives us a similar warning. In chapter 3, he says, Take care, brothers, lest there be any of you with an evil, unbelieving heart, leading you to fall or drift away from the living God. So here's what we are to do. We are to exhort one another then, every day that none may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. Brothers and sisters, we must hear this warning. That laziness leads to a heart that easily drifts. It easily drifts away from the living God. And there is no greater poverty that can come upon us than one who drifts from the grace of God. So to avoid the way of the fool, then we must observe the ant who is self-motivating, who prepares in advance for difficult seasons, and who works hard. That we urgently put to death our tendency towards laziness, knowing that it brings about poverty and it brings about our destruction. Well, now then we get to our third and final warning. So again, the first warning addressed the sun, The second, the sluggard. But now, in the third warning, it doesn't really address anyone directly. He just talks about the wicked man. And what makes this man so wicked? It's because he is divisive, he disrupts unity. And we see every part of him is wicked his mouth is wicked, his eyes, his feet, his hands. They're all wicked. It's because in verse 14, his heart is perverted. He devises evil and is always sowing discord. So here in verse 15, then we see our urgency again. Calamity will come upon this man suddenly. In a moment, he will be broken beyond healing. If this wicked man does not acknowledge his sin and turn from it, he will be destroyed. And then to emphasize this wickedness, he goes on and he gives us six things the Lord's hate, the six things that the Lord hates, seven that are an abomination to him. And this is a type of poetry that's used in the Old Testament, and is trying to emphasize a point. And when it does this, when it gives this list, it's usually the last thing that's the main point. So here, the seventh thing is the thing that we want to focus in on. And again, he uses body parts here to describe what God hates. So he hates haughty and prideful eyes, a lying tongue, hands that shed innocent blood, hearts that devise wicked plans, feet that run to evil, lungs that breathe out lies, And now to the seventh one, the one that we need to focus on. The abomination is the one who sows discord among brothers. Sowing discord is the essence of the wicked man. Listen, God hates haughty eyes because they sow discord. He hates wicked plans because they destroy unity among brothers God delights when we dwell in unity. Psalm 130, 133 says, Behold how good and pleasant it is when brothers dwell in unity. So, when we examine our life, then, do we see any of these things there? Do we have prideful eyes? You know, it's not surprising that pride is the first one on the list. Pride is the root of so many of our sins. What about our tongues? Are we speaking the truth in love? Do we speak the truth to our spouse or our boss? Are we cruel to others? I mean, maybe we're not out murdering people, but do we attack the innocent? Are you cruel to those who are under you? What about your heart? Does it desire to do good? Or is it thinking of ways to swindle others? Are you trying to always advance your own agenda regardless of what rules you maybe need to break? Again, all of these are going to point to this last one. Are you sowing discord among your brothers? I mean, does this ever happen in the church? I think most of us, we've come from other churches. So how do we talk then about those other churches we have come from and the saints there? Are we seeking to build unity with our words? Or are our words sowing discord? Listen, there may be real hurt from past experiences at other churches. I I in no way want to minimize that. But the Lord delights in unity. And there are ways and right settings for us to work through some of these hard issues without disparaging others or sowing discord. What about in our own church? Do we use our words and actions to build and strengthen unity? are we speaking in a way that maybe builds our own image and our own agenda? Is it hard for you to submit to the leadership of your elders? Do you find yourself in conversations with others, always disagreeing with decisions that are being made here? Listen, it's okay to disagree. But is your disagreement causing Disunity? Are you able, as Paul tells the Ephesian church, to walk in humility and gentleness with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the spirit and the bond of peace? Listen, if you find yourself unable to do that, I pray that you'd be willing to come and talk to us about that. Because again, God desires his people to be unified. And if you find that that is hard for you, brother, or sister, please come and talk to us. Because remember, this is a warning for us. If we find ourselves sowing discord, causing strife among brothers, then we must hear this. God hates this. It's an abomination to him. Because he exists in perfect union with the Son and Spirit. And so then we too are in Christ. we have been baptized into this union. So then anyone who is seeking to sow discord and what has been united by God will be judged by him. So we must listen to this warning in verse 15, that calamity comes for the one who sows discord, that in a moment you will be broken beyond healing. So going back then to some of the questions that we asked in the beginning, is there a tendency for us to downplay our sin? Or maybe even just your vulnerability to it? You know, have you been thinking this whole time, like, man, I I really don't struggle with any of these things. You know, I'm not rash, I'm not lazy or quarrelsome. Listen, can I just say we all have a tendency with these sins. Again, like we saw in that C.S. Lewis quote, when we begin to think that we don't need the warnings of Scripture, when we think that we have it pretty well mastered, that is when sin is going to overcome us. But all of these warnings have hope. Like we said earlier, everybody in here was a high risk. That we all were in debt and we could never pay it, yet Christ took it upon himself, forgiving it. But he didn't just forgive it and start us out at zero and say, okay, go earn the rest. No, he took our debt and then gave us his riches. He clothed us with his righteousness. So not only have we been justified by Christ, but we have been sanctified by him too. And because this is true, that in the gospel we've been united to Christ, then we are called now to go and walk in newness of life. That we are to live in obedience to God, doing the works that he has called us to do. So then this requires work on our part. That we are not to be lazy, in our obedience. Jesus says that our light should shine before men. But the sluggard has no light. It's, it's hidden in his bed. And when we work, God has given us the ability to work in his spirit. So in our union with Christ, we've now been empowered by his spirit to go and work diligently. So we don't have to be lazy. We can do our work as unto the Lord. And finally, in our union with Christ, it unites us to one another. That we are meant to delight in one another because we are all one body. And in Christ, this body cannot be divided. So we are meant to love unity. Unity. We were meant to seek unity with one another. Because, brothers and sisters, the opposite of this is that wicked man who seeks to cause disunity. And his end is destruction. So, brothers and sisters, I hope you see that this, these warnings are for us. That to walk in wisdom means that we... Urgently need to flee the path of folly. That God has given us here in these 19 verses how we are to live. That we are not to be rash in our decisions, we're not to be lazy, and we're not to sow discord. Instead, we are meant to be generous and thoughtful with our giving. That We're to be diligent in our work and that we are meant to pursue the unity of the spirit and the bond of peace. Pray with me.